Hello, I'm Jim White and welcome to It's Friday, your arts and culture guide to this weekend. Coming up, the man who needs no introduction is back. The name's Bond. James Bond. Along with these guys. Who could that possibly be? And we speak to the man who gave us this. And playing it 20,000 times. But first, this week, we've had what I think is a movie first. A trailer for a trailer. We had a glimpse of No Time to Die. The last time that Daniel Craig will be jumping into the driving seat of James Bond's Aston Martin. He'll come face to face with Oscar winner Rami Malek as the new villain. Only your skills die with your body. Mine will survive long after I'm gone. History isn't kind to men who play God. But it won't just be dastardly plans and deadly weapons that 007 will be up against. The critics will also be watching as Bond tries to find his place in a post-Me Too world. Now, we all know James hasn't always been that PC. I thought I'd find you in good hands. Felix. <laughs> Felix, how are you? Dink, meet Felix Leiter. Hello. Felix, say hello to Dink. Hi, Dink. Dink, say goodbye to Felix. Hmm? Uh, man talk. And in even more recent times, some of his antics have been a little bit hashtag me too. Oh. Hello. Aren't you in the wrong room, Mr Bond? Not from where I'm standing. Sincerely, would you mind giving me something to put on? But now, with Fleabag's Phoebe Waller-Bridge signed up to help drag Bond into the 21st century, we'll be asking... Can Bond survive in the modern era? Joining me to pick through that knotty question is the Daily Mail's TV critic Claudia Connell and our entertainment columnist Baz Bamigboy. Baz, never mind another day, is it time for Bond to die now? Well, you know, when the Me Too thing kicked off, I wondered about that because he's, he's very masculine and he's red-blooded male and he's the complete antithesis of someone you'd want to sort of be nice to a lady, as it were. But yeah, we need Bond. I'm getting excited. I wasn't, but I'm getting excited about it. What are you Bond. getting excited about? Just because there's something about the fast cars, the sharp suits, the action, the kick-ass stuff, and come on, the girls. The Bond, sorry, the Bond women, not Bond girls. Claudia, are you a Bond fan? Are you no, somebody? I'm just completely Bond-phobic. Um, because everything that Baz mentioned is of no interest to me. I'm not interested in gadgets. I'm not interested in vast cars. I'm just... And, and actually, Daniel, I really, really don't like Daniel Craig. I can't get beyond the pouting. He's like the male Keira Knightley. It's just... <laughs> But, uh, it's, but it's his last film. Don't you want to, yes. don't you want to wish him farewell? No. It's no, his last he's, Bond. Oh, it's just he's such an old misery. It's like he's, he's almost considered it's beneath him to do Bond. He seems, I don't know, he seems a bit sneery about the whole franchise. I'll grant you that he is a misery guts. Yes. He is a misery. I mean, he never used to be, but it has gone to his it's, head, uh, this Bond stuff. I mean, I guess when he gets sort of 15 million bucks a movie, you'd be up yourself, I <laughs> Yeah, but then you might smile a bit, mightn't you? But Buzz, yeah. Buzz you were talking about the fact that uh, the, the difficulty of playing Bond in the Me Too era. If you go back to the source material, if you've ever read uh, Ian Fleming's books, they are absolutely the most misogynistic things you could ever read. I mean... Are we ever going to be able to turn him into a 21st century character? We don't want to. 
We don't want to. Look, I know there's not a place in our society for those sort of people, those sort of men, but they do exist. They do exist. And think about when, when Fleming wrote those books in the 50s and 60s, he, he was writing them from the experience of working in the war years where men were real men. I keep going back to this thing. I mean, you know, we've had the sort of namby-pamby kind of sort of fey Brighton man, and we've had the sort of thick man, but... You know, I think there's a place for the misogynistic man. I am not that man, but they do exist out there. And actually, no wonder what Claudia says, some women like those kind of tough, mm-hmm. kick-ass guys. I'm sorry, they do. Claudia, <laughs> Claudia looks very, very sceptical at that one, Baz. Uh, Claudia, this, uh, Baz said this is Daniel Craig's last yeah. outing. Who would you like to cast as Bond? I know you're not a Bond not, fan, but no. who, who playing Bond might get you to the cinema? Well, I know um, Idris Elba's name has been in the frame for a long time, so I'd, I I am a bit of an Idris fan, so I think, yeah, I might be tempted to pay Could for... Could you say a woman? You know, I don't think I could. I'd like to say, yes, I know... Who, who's been... Is, is, uh, is it Gillian Anderson was mentioned in, in relation to... But no, you know what, I don't think... It's not going to happen. It, I don't think... It's not going to happen. Could it as, work? as long as Barbara Broccoli, who, whose father... You know, Cubby set up the franchise. As long as she's running the show, it will not be a woman. And she said to me, Baz, they were written for a man. And how, you know, the whole ethos will change. And so what do you have? A woman who... Yeah, I'm not going to go there. But, no, it won't work. Um, Idris Elba, of course, cool as you like, uh, fits it all in in one every way, apart from the fact he's black. I mean, could you see a black actor as Bond? Yeah, yeah. And and, and uh, Barbara said it could be black. It could be a black dude, brown dude, pink with yellow spots on. It will be someone who's got the macho, the look. And they, there are people in the frame. I can't give it away here. Oh, come on, Bass. No, you're just talking amongst friends. Come on, tell us. Um, you're the man who knows It's something I'm working on. It's a long-term thing. And Is it I, a surprise? It will be a uh-huh. surprise. It will be a fascinating okay. surprise. Okay, I'm going to throw a couple of names in here. I'd heard Damien Lewis. It's not going to be him. God, this sounds like the end of Ooh. I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out I, of It. Jamie Lewis, it's not going to be you. Idris is <laughs> maybe too old. I mean, he looks good for his age, but I think he's nearly 50, isn't he? So presumably they'd want the new Bond to be in it for several years. I think it's. I think they're going to cast someone in their late 30s, early 40s. Okay, so that would rule Idris out. I mean, what about the special effects? That was one of the things that they seem to have been overtaken by in the way that they were able to do those grand set pieces in the 70s and 80s where Bond led the way. Uh, but other things like Minority Report and so on kind of overtook them. Um, have they recaptured that ground? Well, they think? have. I think the thing that started off was um, the Paul Greengrass movies when he directed Born Identity with Matthew Bourne. And, you know, there was the great uh, scene of um, the hero running across rooftops and God knows what else. And so, yeah, the, the, the Bond people had to bring that kind of that modern vibe into it all. But, you know, the gadgets, they're fascinating, but the gadgets aren't the only thing. You know, you've got to have the whole package. You've got to have the macho guy. Sorry, Claudia. The girls. <laughs> Sorry, Bond women. We don't say Bond uh, girls yeah. anymore. But, uh, no time to die. This is not the time that Bond is going to die. Then you think that this franchise is going to live on. Oh, this franchise is going to come on. Look, this is this is a multi-billion dollar franchise. And it employs half the British film industry, so it's going to keep going. And Claudia, you're not going to watch it, whoever. 
Uh, no, I won't be watching it. No. I'll take you. Oh, well, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> it's date night. If it's, <laughs> with if my it's, wife. <laughs> if it's Idris, I'll watch. But other, but clearly it's not. When, I, when will they announce it? I guess they'll get this one released when will out I of the way. It, do you mean? Well, yes. When I will, don't know. Uh, I'm deciding. Okay. Next year. Baz, <laughs> um, that is something to look forward yeah. to in the new year. Baz and Claudia, thanks Thank so you. much. The founding member of Cockney Rebel, Steve Harley, had a number one hit with Make Me Smile, Come Up and See Me in 1975. You've done it all. You've broken every code. the rebel to the floor. I'm joined by uh, Steve on the line now. Steve, where have you where have you been playing recently? Ah, uh, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we never stop. It's a great life. Uh, we just. I don't have an agent, but I've never been busier than when I, since I dropped my agent two oh, years that, ago. Oh, um, there, there's a lesson for the rest of us. <laughs> it's weird, I, absolutely. When you're established, when you've been you've been in the business as long as I have, promoters around the world know where you are. They know our office. And they come to us and say, what are you doing? Do you want to play here? And we, we look at the diary and the, the, the atlas and we tie it all together. So where's I've the most unexpected back. place you've played recently, Steve? A private function in Bangkok um, not long ago. <laughs> uh, that was fun for some expats. We've just come back from playing a trio, my acoustic trio tour of Belgium, which is a fabulous country. I love being in Belgium. You know, we've been every all Holland, Germany, France this year already. Uh, we just we, we, we yeah we move around a lot. I'm playing right up to Christmas, in fact, um, in two two shows in London. And and now, Steve, I'm sure you've been asked this question a lot, but I'm going to ask you it anyway. Do you have any idea how many times you've played? Come up and see me, make me smile. <laughs> well, if you. <laughs> <laughs> 20,000. I, I don't know. I mean, if you, I play 100 show, 75 to 100 shows most years for 45 years. You know, it's a lot of shows. I've probably sung it 10,000 times. But, you know, you never tire of it because um, it's that sort of song where everyone thinks they can sing it. <laughs> and yeah, my way of singing it on the record is kind of half-spoken at times. And they're probably right. Uh, but you never tire of it. You never do because I play it to three or four hundred people at an acoustic show, and then I play it to forty thousand at a big festival, and every last one of them will sing it to me, and that is a very, very nice feeling. You never grow tired of that. You never grow complacent. You just don't. Uh, I, I remember um, reading a piece about uh, Radiohead and Tom York refusing to play Creep, and I always thought. That's really odd for an entertainer oh, not to play man. the one thing that people it, want to hear. So you sum up yourself. It's, <laughs> it's churlish. Yes. Churlish. Yes, that's it, a very it's, good it's, word for it. It's churlish, arrogant and petulant. Why would they? Why? It's ridiculous. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I, as I say, you, I play 25 songs at a show. What's wrong with playing one or two of them at absolutely every show? I, I move the set list constantly. Yep, well, Springsteen always yep. plays Born to Run, so you're in good company. Of course company. he does. I don't want to spend 100 quid seeing Springsteen and not get Born to Run, do I? No, exactly, exactly. M- McCartney plays, although he plays the big ones every time. It's, it's one of the most played songs ever in British broadcasting. I, I assume it must be being played somewhere in the world, even as we speak. Uh, does that oh, mean it's, it's been long been your pension? 
call it my pension. <laughs> of course, it is. In, a way, in a way, it is, I suppose. But um, oh, my wife and I were in a, t- in a taxi in uh, Montenegro uh, last year, year before, and um, we coming back from dinner to the hotel we were staying in, and uh, it came on the car radio, and this guy was banging away at the, the steering wheel, singing every word in English. And I'm behind him, and uh, she said to me, are you going to tell him? And I said, well, no, I, well, I don't think so. I like a bit of a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> and as we got out, I, I was paying him at the window, paying him through the window at the hotel, and it just faded out, and he was so excited. And I said, good record, that. And he said, the best. It's the best record. I played it at my, my 16th birthday, my marriage, my, my everywhere. We play it all the time. It's the best record ever made. And I say, I'm just staring him in the face and saying, well, I agree entirely. I'm with you on that. <laughs> and we, we walked away, and she said, you should have told him. You'd have made his day. And I just thought, well, yeah, but he might have blanked me. <laughs> can't be sure. It's an, it's an incredible song. I mean, like a lot of your songs, actually, Judy Teen as well, Mr. Soft, it's a song that doesn't seem to have aged. Did you realise that when you were writing it? It's, I mean, were you writing a song for all times? <laughs> nice of you to say so. I, I don't know. We, we knew at the time Alan Parsons was my uh, engineer at Abbey Road and we knew when we played that one track off from the album called The Best Years of Our Lives, we played that one track to the managing director of VMI, my record company, who came in late at night at Abbey Road to see how we were getting on. We played it to him and he just, he just said number one. And we said look, we know it's, it's got something, hasn't it? He said it's got everything. <laughs> And uh, when, a, when the huge record companies in those days, they could move mountains, you know, when they, when they got the, the, the sales teams and the, the promotion team going, like, this year job depends on it almost, they, they, could, they could do anything they wanted. And, yes, yeah, sure enough, it was a number one, of course. Uh, you are incredibly enthusiastic about the song. You still love it. Well, has there ever been a time in your life where you thought, no, nah, I'm going to move on to something else? Well, I, I've, I've published 135 songs. I've got a CD just finished. Um, we've just finished mixing recently, and it's released in uh, the spring when I start touring again. So, no, I don't. We play a long show. You know, we, we've just come back from touring. I told you, show, seven shows in Belgium, playing two and a half hours a night. That's 25 titles each night. So, no, to end, no, to wrap the evening up with that monster, as it were, that's fine by me. It's a great way to walk off stage, I've got to tell you, at the end of a long show. <laughs> you, you were once a, a, a journalist, weren't you? You spent three years at the coalface of newspapers. Um, did any of the skills that you learnt there help you in songwriting? Ooh, the opposite is really true, in that um, in journalism, you know, as a newspaper reporter, I learnt to write quite sh- terse, short sentences, get it all in the first 25 words, basically the essence of the story. Songwriting is more like writing a, a, a poem where you've got to uh, express, put a narrative in there, characters and everything, or at least it is for me. And uh, so not really, no. And also then when I got a little bit of success in the first Cockney Rebel, I was being interviewed all the time by the NME and the Melody Maker and Sounds, and some of those guys uh, had not been journalists, but they were sort of not very successful musicians who could write a bit, and they found me a little bit difficult because I'd done the job they really wanted to do, 
and I was also successful as a musician, which they also wanted to be. <laughs> so it got a little bit complicated, and some of them found me difficult. Uh, I didn't mean to be. I, I, I hope I showed the respect. But uh, being an ex-Bona Fide newspaper reporter kind of uh, made life difficult for me. And to this day, I've got a reputation that precedes me amongst certain people. Um, you, you've been on the road, I'm sorry to say this, Steve, 45 years it was since uh, <laughs> uh, Mr Soft came out. That, that's a long old time. How do you do it physically? I mean, it must be exhausting, isn't it? Uh, you don't feel it at the time. It's interesting. It's uh, the adrenaline rush. Um, when I got home from this recent tour... It's a lot of miles. You're in the tour bus for mile after mile. Uh, some of them are quite early mornings for long drives or aeroplanes. You know, you can't, it's not, we're not on private jets. You know, you're at the mercy of the timetables or schedules. But you, 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 at the time, you don't mind it. We're all inveterate travellers. We're wandering minstrels. It, it's all perfectly part of the job, and we love it. You've got to really like being alone. You've got to like your own company, and the guys around me are like that. And uh, yet when I get home... Uh, recently, I got home two or three days ago and slept for 12 hours. So something was going on that I needed to ca- catch up on, you know. So it is tiring. I realise how lucky I am, how privileged I am. And uh, and now, of course, you, you, you can't make a living from selling CDs or downloads, whatever they are. But, you know, on the road is where our careers are, where our livelihoods are. So there, you've got to like it. You've got to, you've really got to like it out there or, you, you know, you give up and you've got no income. Glastonbury. Do you enjoy being there, playing at uh, Glastonbury? Yeah, I love it. I've done it three times, Glastonbury. Um, never on the pyramid stage, but we've played to big, big, big crowds. I've, I've, I've played uh, two Isle of Wight festivals as well to 40, 50,000. We play a lot of festivals this coming next year. Um, there's about seven or eight already in our diary next for next summer. I like them a lot. You get in and you get out of Dodge. So will we see you at Glastonbury next year? <laughs> if Michael and his daughter invite me, I, <laughs> it's, it's not my choice, is it? But it depends what, yeah, you know, I've, they're coming in thick and fast, the festivals at the moment for us. And, and where can we see you next? When's the next time we can go and sing along to come up and see me make me smile? Uh, we play in December, we're playing three shows up to Christmas, um, 19, 21, 20th, 20th, 20th in uh, Wolverhampton. 21st and 22nd at Nell's in Kensington in London, two nights. Home for Christmas and back out again in February. Looking forward to that. Thanks so much for joining us today, Steve. A real pleasure, my friend. A real pleasure, Jim. Now it's time for Hits and Misses, where our critics ignore the hype and tell us what they really think about this week's new releases. First up, the Daily Mail's film critic, Mr Brian Viner. What have you been watching, Brian? I've been watching a film called Honey Boy, Jim. Listen, that's your problem. And you're selfish. I'm doing you a favour. You're doing me a favour? Who else is going to give a felon a a job? I don't like you talking to me like I work for you. You do work for me, I'm your boss. You know what? I don't have to be here. I could be gone in a second. I could be gone in a second. Now, Honey Boy is uh, a film written by Shia LaBeouf, who is an American actor. He's 33 years old. Whether listeners will be familiar with him, I don't know. But they should be, because he's a very, very good actor. What he also is, is a bit of a personal car crash. His personal life is 
catastrophic. He's <laughs> he's been hooked on drink and on drugs. He's he's been arrested for uh, all kinds of public disorders. Um, but the interesting thing about this film, a very personal project for him, because he was in rehab, and as a um, as a sort of exercise while he was he was being rehabilitated, as an alternative to going to jail. I think he faced a, a significant jail sentence. He wrote this script as a kind of form of personal therapy. So is it autobiographical? It is totally autobiographical. It's about his relationship with his father, who interestingly is played in the film by him, by himself, i.e. Shia, not his not his dad. Um, because Shia LaBeouf was a child actor, uh, a, a sort of pretty decent child actor, acted in, in uh, sort of TV sitcoms. And his father was a convicted felon. Uh, and he, so Shia as a kid, paid, basically paid his father out of his relatively meagre earnings, but paid his father to be his chaperone. And that was an, a way of getting his father kind of gainfully employed. But his old man was a, was a terrible narcissist and a bully, and he undermined the young Shire, who, who is in the film called Otis. So it's very, very thinly fictionalized. But... Um, and it, it's just a, it, it's it's quite a heartrending film, but brilliantly done. For, for me, one of the most uh, exciting things about this film is that the the young Shia LaBeouf or the young Otis is played by an English actor, a little young fellow called Noah Dupe, who you would possibly recognise from. He's done quite a bit. In fact, he was in the Night Manager, the the, uh, the BBC oh, yes, uh, yeah, drama. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's done quite a bit since then in film. He's, I think he's 14 or something, and he plays 12 in this film. He is completely brilliant. I mean, he is absolutely brilliant. Uh, the older Otis is played by Lucas Hedges, who's also a very, a very fine actor. He plays him as a, as a sort of young adult. Uh, and as I say, Shia LaBeouf plays his own father. So it goes sort of back and forth in time, and you, you basically learn why the older Otis is himself so... Dysfunctional because he's he's had this very very difficult early childhood with this father who they live in this kind of motel and the father is a I think he's he's off the alcohol he's been dry for a few years but he's still a total totally wild and and untamable so it's about their relationship and it, and it, you know there are moments of tenderness actually and it, and you know you can see the bond between them it's a it's a really really interesting film it's quite short as well so all credit here to them for keeping it to about 90 minutes which is which is another thing in its favor it's a tough watch it's intense but there are moments of of joy in it um and it is just very 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 well done so hit or miss Brian? well i think you might have guessed from from all of that i would pronounce it definitely a hit and what else is there on our screens this weekend there's a film called lucy in the sky starring natalie portman and so let's start with the title i i shrink from that title because it's obviously you know based on lucy in the sky with diamonds but Natalie Portman plays an astronaut, so they've decided to call her Lucy, so they can call the film Lucy in the Sky, <laughs> so they can in turn play Lucy in the Sky with diamonds in the, in the course of the film. And it's also, that in itself is just horribly contrived. Lucy. Time to wrap it up. Just a few more minutes. I saw my house from space. Not literally, but my life. You know Michael Collins? Of course, so Apollo 11. I flew the command module for Neil and Buzz. So you know that after he dropped them, he circled the moon for hours. 
Inside the module, he wrote, I am now truly alone and absolutely alone from any known life. I am it. The story is basically about uh, she's an astronaut. She's just come back to Earth in more ways than one after 10 days in space. And it's really about her uh, sort of trying to readjust to the the smallness of life on Earth after the vastness of, of being in this sort of cosmos. And you think, well, you know, there's 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 some interest in that. That could be that could sort of head in some interesting directions. But actually, it just it is so much less than the sum of its parts. It's so. You know, it just it just kind of gets uh, all knotted up in a sort of becomes like a, a soap opera, and she f- she falls for this fellow astronaut played by John Hamm, who we know from from Mad Men, the TV series, who's who's you know very sort of square jawed alpha male. Uh, she's married to a, a sort of a bit of a a nice but wet guy played by Dan Stevens who uh, from Downton Abbey fame and he's even wetter in this film I have to say than he was in Downton Abbey and that is wet it's a story about a, a, a woman being unfaithful to her husband about her relationship with her grandmother played by Ellen Burstyn by the way who's, who's terrific who's always nice to see her but it just doesn't work you think well what, you know why am I sitting here watching this and I mean Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds is allegedly a pee and a praise to the creative possibilities of drug taking, isn't it? I so, mean, yeah. it's got nothing to do with that, has it? No, there's a, it's not the Beatles version, it's somebody else's version of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. which is played halfway through the, the film when she's she's not drug addled but she's just in a in a in a strange kind of place you know trying to come to terms with being back on earth and her life kind of caving in around her so that's when it's played in the in the movie but no nothing to do with drugs i have a bit of a an aversion to you know naming a character so that you can then sort of fashion the the title of the film or or indeed a book around you know with a with a bit of wordplay so calling her lucy and calling it lucy in the sky is enough to put me off from from word go, to be honest. I'm already getting where you're going with this. Hit or miss, Brian? So, yeah, without the slightest doubt, it is a big miss. And finally, what else have you seen? I have seen a, a film called Motherless Brooklyn. It's based on a novel, and the novel was set in, I think it's contemporary, actually, but Ed Norton, who, who the actor who has made this his kind of personal project, decided that he was going to reset it in the late 1950s. So it's a, it's a detective story. He plays a private detective. They call them gumshoes in those days, which is quite nice. I quite like that. It's all kind of the Raymond Chandler sort of type thing. And it's basically about an investigation by him but what's very interesting is that he suffers from Tourette syndrome, and it's and Ed Norton does it actually really rather brilliantly. It's 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 very good. He's he's kind of, you know, he shouts random things out all the time, and he has this twitch, and he. It's quite a good device because it makes you think that he he you know there's something significantly wrong with him which has perhaps impaired his brain, but he's actually sharp as a tack, and he and he goes out and he solves this uh, this kind of mystery, and it's it's very stylish, and the costumes fantastic and the setting it's all in set in Manhattan and Manhattan looks great late 50s but you know I was just saying about films being too long these days and this one is a is two and a half hours plus and you think hang on a minute this story could have been told in you know at least sort of 25 minutes 
shorter than short time. They've got to leave her in a lot of cameos from a lot of stars. It's very star-studded, isn't it? Yeah. William Defoe's in it. William Defoe's in it, and uh, Alec Baldwin's in it, playing this kind of megalomaniacal uh, property developer. Um, they're both great. Bruce Willis has a relatively small part. So, yeah, it's a great cast. And it's not even that. It's not all the cameos. It's just that they it kind of, you know, there's a scene in a jazz club, and we, and we hear this great bit of jazz, you know, but it goes from kind of start to finish. So, you know, a lot of movies would just kind of truncate that slightly, but no, we've got to listen to the whole thing and then we go back and we listen to more jazz and then it go and then it lingers on a on a bridge for kind of two minutes too long and then you know, so there's a lot of that. But if you can live with all of that, um, and you don't mind sort of kicking your shoes off and just kind of lying back and enjoying the the look of it. And the quality of the acting, which is terrific, and the and the story, which is a little bit kind of labyrinthine, but it, we get there eventually. Then you know it's it's not bad. So you know if if you're going to ask me whether it's a hit or a miss, which I think you might be about to, with a few caveats, it's a hit. And that was Brian Viner, the Daily Mail's film critic. I'm joined by Adrian Thrills, the Daily Mail's music critic, um, to tell us what we should be putting on our turntables over the next week or so. Um, Adrian, sorry, turntable, that's, that, that dates me, doesn't it? Um, nobody well, puts you would music think on so. it. In one, you're wrong, actually. Over the last four or five years, there's been a real resurgence of vinyl, and it's a very desirable, high-end luxury item these days. I mean, there's a lot of um, albums both Christmas and otherwise, being put out. Um, but the, the format that really would date you would be CDs. No one really buys CDs these days, but vinyl is enjoying a, a really welcome resurgence. OK, so I'm, uh, my vinyl, what should I be buying this week? So, well, we've got two albums from the uh, op- opposite extremes of the age spectrum. The first one being those grand old men of Rock the Who, who have just today released their first album in 13 years, the first album since... 2006's Endless Wire and it's called simply WHO in capital letters It's Pete and Roger and obviously they're never going to replace the two members who, who sadly passed away the kind of moon the loon on drums and the virtuoso multi-instrumentalist John Entwistle but they've they've brought in a few really top grade session guys who've been with them for you know again a good few years um Ringo's son Zach Starkey's on drums you've got Pino Palladino on bass Ben Montench of the Heartbreakers on organ and they they make a mighty racket still the the who and Townsend he still fires off those power chords I think Roger is singing as well as ever. His voice just, it's, it's got a bit more gravelly with age, but he, he really does sing very well. And there's some, there's some great songs. Of course, being the Who, there's still, there's still kind of a grumpiness, a kind of fury. They just, they, they're not kind of growing old quietly. They're, they're raging against the dying of the light. And uh, the, the opening line of the album on the song, there's a song called All This Music Must Fade. And the opening line is, I don't care. I know you're going to hate this song. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a selling selling issue if there ever was one. That's an amazing so, first line. There's an orchestration on some tracks. And then as you get kind of more into the album, there's one or two quieter interludes. There's a lovely Pete Townsend song that he actually sings called I'll Be Back. But the underlying thing is this 
we've had adolescent angst. I think we've now got septuagenarian angst from The Who. And also, I'd say they'd be well worth catching live on their... They're doing yet another tour next year. And on the evidence of the show I saw at Wembley in the summer, they can still really rock a, rock a venue. So, Adrian, hit or miss? It's a hit. And what else have you been listening to, Adrian? 52 years younger than... Uh, so Mr. Townsend, we've got the Cuban-American singer Camilla, Camilla Cabello, who has just released her second album, which is called Romance. So a much kind of softer effort than the, than the Who's. And... Again, it's rather good. It's it's a very modern-sounding pop record. I mean, pop records these days, in 2019, a lot of them, they're, they're slightly less brash than the kind of stuff we'd have been listening to 10 or 15 years ago. It, it's quite an intimate, mellow sound with quite a few Latin trimmings. There's kind of moody, electronic ballads. She's got a, a host of top-notch producers in to kind of make that kind of really modern sounding record. She emerged from a, she was originally in a girl band called Fifth Harmony on the American X Factor. And um, she went solo a couple of years ago. And you never really know, with people from boy bands and girl bands, when they go solo, you for every, you know, Robbie Williams, there's, there's someone who doesn't quite, uh, quite make it. This album's being trailed as the biggest pop event of 2019. And I think maybe Harry Styles and Taylor Swift might have something to say about <laughs> that. But it's... Uh, it's it's a it's a good record and I think it will do very very well. She's touring next year as well, and I'm sure that will be a good show. So hit or miss, Adrian? It's a hit. Now it's back to hits and misses, and I'm joined by Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's television critic, to tell us what's coming up on our screens over the next week. Well, on Sunday, there's a feature-length drama called Elizabeth is Missing on BBC One. Elizabeth is missing, I know it. Are you out looking for her? Like I told you yesterday. Was I here yesterday? What's happened to my sister? Where is she? Where is she? Your sister, Suki, went missing 70 years ago. Suki! I looked everywhere for her. That's why I've got to find Elizabeth. So that's an adaptation of a novel by Emma Healy that came out about five years ago. And Glenda Jackson stars in this as Maud. And this is her first acting role for, I think, nearly 30 years. Well, she's been an MP she's, for yeah, a very been, long time, she's been time, in politics. She? So she plays a lady in her 80s with advancing dementia. And the story is that Maud, as a, as a young girl, her older sister went missing and never reappeared. And now that Maud is getting older and she's sinking into dementia, she becomes convinced that her neighbour and best friend has also gone missing. It's a very moving story and it, it sort of, I think it really sort of depicts dementia very well. And, and Glenda Jackson is just, she's just amazing. It's she just, was always such yes, a brilliant I mean, I think actress. She's, is it two Academy Awards she's mm. won, I think, yeah. And it, it's just, it's honestly, it's one of the best things I've, ever seen on TV. I, I watched it about three really? days ago. Really? As good ago. as that? It's incredible. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since I watched it. It's so what's just, so good? It's, it's obviously her, her performance. Her performance. I mean, she needs to win every award going and it, it's her relationship with her family. It's mostly her daughter who she lives with and she's she has moments of real clarity where she knows who her daughter is and they have a really loving, close bond and then she 
you know, in the next breath, she doesn't know who her daughter is and she becomes, she's quite um, unpleasant towards her daughter and her granddaughter. She's also quite physically aggressive towards them as well and hits her and attacks her. And it's incredible. Such an incredible incredible performance and of course it's a it's an issue which affects a lot of people but yes. isn't often depicted no. on the screen no because it? it's not i mean it's not glamorous but i i would imagine that anybody who's watching who has a family member with alzheimer's will think this is incredibly well done so hit or miss oh massive hit and what else have you seen, Claudia? So I've also been looking at something called The Hit List, which is on BBC One on a Saturday night. This is the soundtrack to your Saturday night. The Hit List on BBC One. BBC One is a bit quiz happy at the moment. They've got uh, The Wall with Danny Dyer has just finished. I'm glad you mentioned that. We yeah. can't not mention we Danny Dyer's The Wall. We always have to mention The Wall with Danny Dyer. Um, Pointless is obviously a huge hit for, for the BBC going on. And this, The Hit List, this, so this precedes Strictly. So it's after Pointless, before Strictly. And it's it's a pop quiz. And it's, it's presented by husband and wife couple uh, Marvin and Rochelle Humes, um, who are on TV a lot um, at the moment. And they're, I'm sure they're lovely people, but they're just not the most gifted presenters, especially Marvin when he reads the auto cue. Oh. Do you know your Beatles from your Bruno Mars? Sorry. <laughs> Can you name a number one from the first few bars? Mamas and Poppers, California Dreamin'. Join us for the music quiz show, guaranteed to get you shouting the answers at the telly. Wow. So it's a pop quiz. And but, but we remember, never mind the Buzzcocks, where it yeah. was so irreverent and the presenters, Mark Lamar and so on, they were always so, um, you know, undermining. People would walk out because they were having yes. the mickey taken no, out no, of them. No, 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 no this, this is Saturday night, sort of light entertainment. And it's all, it's just very cheesy. And one of the things they do, which quiz shows in general just seem to do, and it really annoys me, is it just takes so long to actually get down to the quiz. I, You know, I have to find out all about their people the people and their hobbies and tell us a funny story about when you went on holiday to Spain and I don't care. So this is all members of the public. It's not celebs. And it's like, it's basically name that tune. So they play an intro <laughs> and they have to, it's the first person to guess what it is. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? The way that uh, some quizzes work and yeah. others don't. So no, who wants to doesn't. be a millionaire? Pointless, yeah. absolutely yeah. brilliant. Everyone else is chasing their tail yes. and not going anywhere. And trying, yeah, and this, no, definitely not this one. I mean, actually, the one that's on on Saturday, the couple who win, you're playing for £10,000, which there is absolutely no chance of. It's impossible. The quiz is set up so it's impossible to win £10,000. So nobody ever does. But um, the people who win, and I think they win about £8,000 on Saturday, they're, they're pretty good and they have a good music knowledge. But in some of the previous weeks, they've just been awful. You get people who like, play an they're playing. Elvis track and they'll say oh that was a bit before my time which you know or, or the Beatles and, th and things like that so the contestants are, are very young and seem to lack pop knowledge so hit or miss oh wait I mean it's called the hit list but I'm afraid it's a huge miss the miss list yes <laughs> let's find out what they're gossiping about on the other side of the Atlantic and who better to tell us than the male's own Jackie Stephen. Um, Jackie, you won't have seen this because you're in the uh, United States at the moment, but one of the things that everyone's talking about is a new advert for Sky TV, which features E.T. He's uh, back on our screens. Yeah. 
Elia. You came back. My son. But my family. You're missing out on this, Jackie. Well, in actual fact, we had it first. Oh, did you? You oh, were about right. a week behind us, yes. <laughs> I saw it, and I was talking about it and telling everyone about it, and everyone was saying we haven't seen it. So in actual fact, I saw it a couple of weeks ago. And yes, everyone is talking about it. It's incredibly moving. Uh, E.T. has come back, and Elliot, the boy who played Elliot in the movie, he's a grown-up in it, and he says to E.T., you came back. Well, first question, why did it take you so long? <laughs> because now I've got my own family, it's about 30 years old, and now you turn up. And then he turns up only to say, I'm off again because I've got to look after my own family at Christmas. What a horrid Christmas present. Not very nice, E.T. But it's incredibly moving. I saw the movie when it came out. I watch it every Christmas because it breaks my heart. I like to cry at Christmas. And it's, to me, it's the greatest movie of all time. And I once told Steven Spielberg that. I was at a function and I crawled through someone's legs at a private party in order to get to him. And he just wanted <laughs> well, to... No, no, sorry. <laughs> Rewind there, Jackie. You literally crawled across the floor. I literally that is crawled, yes. Because, this this well, is a, a woman who will party. stop at nothing to get a story. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I went through someone's legs and I, I was small enough to get in and I didn't have a wristband to get to the party. And he won for Schindler's List. And I went up to him and said, I know you've just won for Schindler's List, but I have to tell you, I said, I think E.T. is the greatest film ever made. And he said, do you know, I was thinking about that movie last week. And I think you may well be right. I think you're right. I, I mean, it's a beautiful film, isn't it? And, and it kind well, of stands the test of time as well. Well, it's about all the great themes. It's a very primal film. It's about love, support, friendship, belonging. And it's got, for me, the greatest line ever in a movie. And it's only two words. And Elliot says, stay. And E.T. says, come. And they can't because they belong to different worlds. And to me, that's the ultimate relationship dilemma. One person wants you to stay. The other person wants you to go with them. And that's why it's such a great film. And what happens in the advert, it's, it, it reignites all of those primal feelings in us. And it's a beautiful advert. Will it make me go out and buy Sky TV? Not the month of Sundays. It could be <laughs> advertising a Volkswagen, for all I know. You'll and just enjoy it, the I, ad. <laughs> well, when I was talking to people last week and they said, but what's it for? And I had to go back and check the ad to find out what it was for. So apart from, apart from E.T. and apart from these ads for Sky TV, what have you been, uh, what's everyone talking about on your side of the pond? Well, we're still talking about the movies coming up because it, it's really hotted up now for the Oscars season and people are talking about, you know, what do they think is the best movie coming out. Everyone is now talking about 1917, which is a, a British-made film and it was shot in a very short space of time and apparently in one single shoot and now suddenly that's in the Oscars race and people are talking less about the Irishman. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. I'm going to see my so uh, there's quite a lot of excitement about the Brits at the moment. And then at the weekend, 
I was at the Rose Door Awards uh, in the UK, and Michael McIntyre is suddenly big again. Uh, he's always been big in Britain, but people are sort of starting to notice him on the, you know, the American side of things. Oh, he's interesting. Wonderful, yeah. Well, he's he's got that posh British voice. They they, they can't get enough of posh British voices. And Michael is someone who is a brilliant, brilliant stand-up. They photographed every road in the whole world, and they put them on Google Earth, on the computer, and you can go there, you just type it in, and you go there, you drag a little man over the map, and you drop him into the road, and then you're there. You can see it. It's really amazing technology. And you sit in front of the computer, and you think, I can go anywhere, anywhere in the world. Where shall I go? And we all come to the same conclusion, my house. You know, he might make it in America. He might be the next big thing. What they're always looking for in America is the next big British thing. And I have a feeling that he might be it. In England, we've all got our Christmas lights up and so on. And we've always imagined that New York must be particularly lovely around Christmas time. Is it? Are the lights brilliant? And uh, are, are you attracted to the storefronts and so on? I really am. I think New York is magical. There are two places I love at Christmas. One is Paris and one is New York. And the tree lights up in uh, Rock, by the Rockefeller Center on December the 4th. It's actually worth going to the Rockefeller Center to see the tree after Christmas, because at this time of year, everyone turns up for it. It's a huge, huge event. We've had the Macy's Day Parade, which is the build-up to Christmas, really. And that was great, despite the weather. Uh, they managed to have the balloons up because they had to. St- they were worried whether the balloons could actually be up because one injured someone in the high winds uh, a few years back. But it all went ahead as planned. So that's at the beginning of it all. And now with the tree going up, it's it's a really magical time. And it is all light. And it's all of those movies. Actually, what is very funny at the moment, I'm watching all these Hallmark movies, which make me sob. They've got a Christmas season on Hallmark. And all of these movies are, they sort of follow a pattern. There's usually a woman who's broken up with a guy. Uh, the guy happens to be single and handsome. I've never met a single handsome guy in, at Christmas in my entire <laughs> life. And what just ha- and yes, they all seem to turn up in the middle of nowhere in the Hallmark movies. <laughs> and the woman, <laughs> there's usually a cute kid. Either the woman's got a cute kid or the guy's got a cute kid. And they're so beautifully cast. They're like human ETs. They're just so sweet. So- and then they all end up getting together. They go ice skating. And then they all get together and live happily ever after. Again, never happened to me at Christmas at all. So all Jackie Stephen wants for Christmas is a handsome man on ice skates to turn up. Listen, I'll give 40 minutes in the bar at last orders. That'll be enough for me. I'm <laughs> great for anything these days. Jackie, great to speak to you. <laughs> and that's it from It's Friday this week. Thanks to all my guests and thank you to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at itsfriday at mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back next Friday and every week with your Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. But for now, I'm Jim White. Goodbye. Goodbye.